we're doing something a little different in lieu of news and new releases and a topic of the week. We're talking Ben Affleck's new movie, Air, about the courting and signing of Michael Jordan to Nike in 1984, wooing him away from Nike's, at that time, far more successful competitors, Converse and Adidas. I'm going to review the movie in just a few moments, and then we're going to take a deep dive into the historical accuracy of the film. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? What did they embellish or just leave out altogether? We're also going to talk about what happened after the events of the movie air, and not just with Jordan himself, but with all of the characters in the film, Sonny Vaccaro in particular. So the way it's going to work is I'm going to give a spoiler-free review of the film first, and then in the second part of the podcast, I will be doing the spoiler-filled historical stuff. So I'll give you a warning after I'm done the review, and if you don't want to have the movie spoiled because there are a few twists and turns for anyone who isn't familiar with the story, you can avoid that by pausing the pod and coming back to it after you've had a chance to check the movie out. Okay, so Air is about Nike signing Jordan and thereby creating the biggest athlete sportswear partnership in history. Basically, the movie dives into the fact that Jordan had zero interest in signing with Nike as his college career was coming to a close and he was preparing to enter the NBA draft at the projected number three spot behind Hakeem Olajuwon at number one and amazingly, in hindsight, Sam Bowie in number two. Now, the reason the greatest basketball player of all time went third and not first in that draft was because in 1984, guards, which was the position Michael played, were a dime a dozen and big men or center positioned players were all the rage. Jordan, due to his height of six foot six, just did not excite teams the way Olajuwon did at seven feet and Bowie did at seven foot one. The Houston Rockets went on to great success with Olajuwon, including back-to-back championships, coincidentally, in the two years Jordan was off playing baseball, but the Portland Trailblazers got basically nothing out of the injury-prone Bowie and have, rightfully, never lived down that pick and also, rightfully, never will. But in the movie, it's already been decided and understood that those three players were off the board for Nike who not only could not afford to match Adidas and Converse's sneaker endorsement offers, but couldn't even woo Olajuwon away from the more or less no-name shoe brand, Etonic. One thing the movie makes clear over and over again is that Jordan wanted to sign with Adidas because in 1984, Adidas was the equivalent of what Nike is today. Run DMC was the biggest rap group in the world at that time, and not only did they wear Adidas shell toes on their feet and drape themselves in snazzy three-striped jogging suits, they actually had a shoe deal and a song about the shell toes, the immortal My Adidas. So Adidas had the streets, they had the cool kids, the break dancers, the graffiti cats, the rap stars, and their fans. I mean, wearing Adidas track suits and shell toes with no laces was quite literally as cool as it got back in those days. So Jordan wanted in on that, and Nike, who barely had a basketball division and were known almost exclusively for running shoes, wasn't even a thought in his mind. By some accounts, he didn't even know what Nike was. And if Adidas couldn't get it done, there was Converse, whose shoes Jordan wore in college and who had NBA superstars like Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Isaiah Thomas, and the immortal Dr. J, who was Jordan's idol since childhood, 
in their pool of talent. So the movie starts with Sonny Vaccaro, played by Matt Damon, sitting in a meeting with several people from the basketball division of Nike, including Nike's director of marketing, Rob Strasser, played by Jason Bateman. They're batting around some names from the upcoming NBA draft and the projected positions of numbers 5 to 12, including Charles Barkley and John Stockton. None of the names are really moving the needle in the meeting, and Vaccaro is at home later on to engage in his nightly routine of screening VHS basketball mixtapes of NBA college prospects. He gets stuck on a tape of Jordan hitting that immortal shot with the UNC Tar Heels to secure the NCAA championship in 1982. While he's watching that shot, he's also watching a commercial on another TV of a tennis player selling a tennis racket and saying, this is the racket I used to win Wimbledon. So the mixture of Jordan and his calm demeanor while making the biggest shot of his basketball life up to that point and the tennis star selling his own racket back to the public gives Vaccaro the idea to build a Nike shoe around Jordan, the player, rather than using Jordan to sell Nikes, which was typically how things were done in basketball endorsement deals back then. So that kicks off the film, and the next two hours revolve around Vaccaro's wheelings and dealings to secure Jordan as the prime and only basketball athlete at Nike. And this is something that I found very surprising and interesting about this film. The Matt Damon, Sonny Vaccaro character is in basically every scene. The whole narrative of the movie revolves around his relationships, primarily but not only with Jordan's mother, played with typically impeccable stoicism and regality by Viola Davis, but also his frenemy in real life and in the movie, Phil Knight, played with his own pitch perfection by Ben Affleck, who also directed the film. So much so that the movie could easily and probably should have been called Sunny instead of the sillier-sounding air. Another interesting stylistic and narrative choice that this movie made, something many other people have commented on, is the fact that Michael Jordan, the character, isn't really in it. I mean, he's seen at meetings with his parents and getting in and out of limos, but we never see his face and we never really hear him talk. I don't think this is because Jordan didn't give the filmmakers permission to use his likeness. I mean... There's archival Jordan footage sprinkled throughout the entirety of the movie at different times for different reasons. I think it's more that the filmmakers wanted to hammer home that this isn't a Michael Jordan movie. It's not really even an Air Jordan sneaker movie at the end of the day. It's more a movie about the early days of a fledgling business and the gambling and risks that are involved and inherent in any business's rise to economical and consumer prominence. And the filmmakers weren't worried about putting too fine a point on that as they actually feature a scene early in the movie of Vaccaro haunting the table games of a smoky casino somewhere in probably Vegas. I mean, why bother with symbolism when you can just give it to him straight, right? It would be impossible to make a movie about the beginning of a $4 billion a year juggernaut like the Air Jordan line without laying on thick where you know this story will wind up. And to be sure, there are speeches given or lines delivered by Matt Damon, Viola Davis, Ben Affleck, Marlon Wayans in a small role, Chris Tucker, Jason Bateman, and Matthew Maher as Peter Moore that all have verbal winks and nods as to what the events of the film mean and what happens next as a result of them. Which doesn't really hurt the movie, but it does get in the way of any attempts at subtlety in a historical context. But the movie is very well written. 
It's exceedingly well-acted, well-directed. It nails the look and feel of the early to mid-80s and features a banging 80s soundtrack. All in all, it's a fascinating movie about a fascinating story that feels authentic and historically accurate. But is it? In part two, we're going to take a look at those historical accuracies and inaccuracies and see where Affleck and co. got it right and where they got it wrong, or at least less right right after this. Okay, welcome to part two. We're going to get into all the spoilers in this part of the pod, so if you haven't seen the movie and plan to and don't want things spoiled, consider yourself forewarned. So as I said earlier, the most fascinating thing about this movie is that it makes Sonny Vaccaro the central figure of the story. More than Jordan himself, more than his mom, more than Nike CEO Phil Knight, more than creative director Rob Strasser or the designer of the Air Jordan 1 and its famous Wings logo and the even more famous Jumpman logo, Peter Moore. This is Sonny's story. And what's fascinating about that is to this day, Sonny has a contentious relationship with Nike, Knight, and Michael Jordan. So contentious, in fact, that people at Nike have tried their best to scrub Vaccaro's involvement in the Jordan signing from the history books. There are actually several different versions of events of that deal from several different people who are directly or indirectly involved. In the blockbuster lockdown-saving documentary The Last Dance, in my opinion the greatest documentary on Michael Jordan and the 90s Bulls, David Falk, who is Jordan's agent throughout the 80s and 90s, says he was more or less single-handedly responsible for convincing Jordan to sign with Nike. In Driven From Within, a book by Jordan in 2005 that explains his creative process, Falk and Jordan both say it was all Rob Strasser's doing that got Jordan to Nike. And in Roland Lazenby's Michael Jordan, The Life, considered by many to be the definitive Jordan biography, Lazenby gives even more credit to Vaccaro for the deal than even the movie does. The stories are so disparate, in fact, that in Driven From Within, Falk tells a story about Michael wanting a car from Nike as part of the signing. At the meeting where Nike pitched the Air Jordan line to him, Strasser pulls two toy sports cars out of his pocket and rolls them over to Michael, telling him that he can pick one and they'll get him the real thing. Lazenby tells the same story in The Life, but says it was Vaccaro that had the toy cars. Elsewhere in the movie, Dolores Jordan, Michael's mother, won't let Vaccaro so much as speak to Jordan until he's won her trust and Sonny doesn't meet the kid until the pitch meeting at Nike. In Lazenby's book and in the 30 for 30 documentary Soul Man about Vaccaro's life and times, Vaccaro says he first met Jordan at a Tony Roma's in Los Angeles, a meeting that was facilitated by Vaccaro's best friend at the time and one of Jordan's 84 Olympics basketball coaches, George Raveling, played by Marlon Wayans in the movie. However, Jordan has never told the story, either to confirm or deny it. So why are Nike people trying to delete Vaccaro from Air Jordan history? According to Vaccaro, shortly after Jordan won his first championship against the Lakers in 1991, Phil Knight fired him for reasons unknown. Hurt and confused, Vaccaro went to work for Nike's arch nemesis Adidas, where a few years later, he was able to facilitate the signing of Kobe Bryant, whose father, Joe Bryant, had been friends with Vaccaro for over 20 years. Kobe would eventually wind up at Nike himself, but poaching big-name athletes for Adidas would have pissed off the very competitive heads over at Nike to no end. Jordan has also said in later years that he never really liked Vaccaro and found him shady. 
this shady aspect of Sonny's personality was not an opinion that was Jordan's alone. The movie leans into Sonny being overweight and frumpy in contrast to all of the fit athletic types that fill the offices at Nike. And it leans away from Sonny, who in real life is a full-blooded Italian Catholic, being what people described as a mafia type, like a character out of Goodfellas or Donnie Brasco. By some accounts, Sonny actually enjoyed that people thought he was connected in some way to the mob as he felt it gave him an added edge in business deals. Now, Matt Damon, who's very good as Sonny in the film, does not give off an air of mobsterism beyond perhaps making a fistful of cash at the beginning of the movie at a sports book. But the real Sonny Vaccaro having an air of shadiness about him was not an uncommon opinion upon one's first meeting. But I think it just very simply boils down to Vaccaro being fired, taking a job with Nike's main competitor, and then when his time at Adidas was done, taking another job with another Nike competitor at Reebok. Although the legendarily shy Phil Knight is a professional hermit when it comes to Nike's business dealings, what people and Knight himself in his autobiography Shoe Dog have said is that the man is as competitive in business as Jordan was on the basketball court. And that's probably the long and the short of it when it comes to the reticence of affording Vaccaro any credit whatsoever for the Jordan deal and its origins. He became their competition. Now, Air is a Hollywood movie based on a true story, and there is just no such thing as a Hollywood movie based on a true story that doesn't take narrative license in service of entertainment, even over accuracy. Whether for pacing, dramatic effect, or just to pull on the old heartstrings. And Air does all three when it comes to the character of Michael's mother, Dolores. One of the final scenes of the movie is a phone call between Dolores and Sonny, the one where she informs him that they have decided to sign with Nike on one condition, that Nike give Jordan a percentage piece of every Air Jordan sneaker ever sold. This seems obvious today, but in 1984, that was not how it was done. Shoe companies paid the athletes a lump sum up front and then kept the profits of the shoes all to themselves. This worked out in the athlete's favor if the shoes didn't sell, and it worked out in the company's favor if the shoes did sell. Today, the Jordan deal, the film informs us at the end via subtitles, works out to about $400 million a year for Michael Jordan personally and around about $4 billion annually for Nike. And while Jordan's mom is credited by Jordan himself with ultimately forcing him to take the meeting at Nike and to listen to their pitch, It wasn't Dolores Jordan who made that aspect of the deal happen. The percentage profits were part of the package Nike was offering to Jordan from the get-go. It likely had much more to do with David Falk than it did Dolores or anyone else. But the phone call between Viola Davis and Matt Damon is powerful and cute. A mother who believes in her son and her son's greatness so fiercely she refuses to take anything less than the keys to the kingdom. Damon hems and haws and more or less tells her thanks but no thanks until he talks to Affleck's knight who says, F it, take the deal. It's a big, heartwarming, fist-pumping moment which has nothing to do with the real story but works within the context of the movies and what people pay to see when they go to them. Another thing the movie changes from the true story that will be immediately apparent to sneaker freaks but that otherwise won't be of any consequence to the average viewer is that the Air Jordan prototype creative director Peter Moore comes up with that Nike presents to Michael and his family is of the red, white, and black Chicago colorway. 
This is the most famous and popular color blocking of the Air Jordan 1 and has been since its debut in 1985. And that's probably why the filmmakers made the decision to showcase it as the very first Air Jordan. In reality, it was the slightly less popular black and red or bread colorway that Nike shows to Jordan first. Jordan is actually famous for not liking the shoe when it was first presented to him, commenting that it would make him look like a clown and that red is the devil's color. But Nike sent him off with a pair and he admitted in his book that the more he wore them, the more they grew on him. And if you want to get even deeper into the lore of the shoe, when Michael started his rookie season with the Bulls, the Air Jordans weren't quite ready yet and Nike outfitted MJ with the Air Ship instead, an updated version of the Air Force One. Jordan wouldn't wear the black and red Air Jordan 1s until a few months later, closer to when they went on sale to the public in February of 85. Which brings us to another departure the movie makes from the true story. In the film, while Vaccaro and Strasser are meeting with Moore to discuss the design elements of Jordan's shoe, Moore makes mention of the fact that in the NBA, player shoes must be in their team colors and must be at least 51% white. He says that they'll be fined $5,000 a game if they drape Jordan's shoe in that much red. Strasser says, screw it, we'll pay the fine and use it as a marketing ploy. In reality, Strasser did say screw it, and he did use it as a marketing ploy with the infamous band commercial of 1985, which is still one of the greatest sports marketing commercials of all time. Check it out on YouTube if you haven't seen it. But that all happened much later. Jordan played his first game in a black and red pair of airships in October 1984. The NBA sent Nike a letter in February 85 to inform them that the league prohibits Jordan's black and red shoes and that they will find Jordan the five grand every time he wears them. So they did. And Nike used the whole band concept to make the shoes badass and undoubtedly sold a boatload of them as a result. Air is filled with moments of dry humor to its benefit, and it's one of those moments that contains another bit of historical rewriting. In every account told of the shoes and the Jordan-Nike signing, Falk is credited with coming up with the name Air Jordan, a play on Nike's new Air Sole technology where they place a small balloon filled with air in the sole of some of their shoes, like the Air Force One and the Airship, for added comfort and heel response. In the movie, Peter Moore claims he came up with it first, and Vaccaro uses that to antagonize Falk after the Jordan deal is done. Peter Moore, as I've said, came up with several of the Air Jordan line's most iconic images and designs, but I've never read anywhere that he thought of calling the shoes the Air Jordan. The movie ends with clips and slides of the real Michael Jordan going on to have arguably the greatest career in professional sports history. It informs us that the Air Jordan line is worth billions. It informs us that Phil Knight has himself given billions to charity over the years and that Dolores Jordan runs several charitable organizations in Chicago in her son's name. So that's what happened to Jordan and his mom, but what about everybody else? Well, we've talked about Sonny going to Adidas and then to Reebok. He also facilitated a landmark case in college basketball, which allowed college players in the NCAA to make money from their name and likenesses, something that the crooked NCAA used to forbid. Since then, he's enjoyed his retirement, still hurt and still confused, according to the Soul Man documentary, that Michael and Phil want nothing to do with him or his legacy. Rob Strasser and Peter Moore also ended up at Adidas. Strasser died in Germany in 1993, and Peter Moore passed away in April 2022, shortly before the completion of the movie. 
Along with the Jordan Wings logo and the Jumpman logo, Moore designed the famous Three Stripes Mountain logo for Adidas while he was there. What a legend. Anyone familiar with Jordan's story will know that his father, whose character has a small role in the film, was murdered in 1993, an event which facilitated Jordan's first retirement when he tried his hand at baseball, a sport his father always wanted him to play. And Phil Knight is Phil Knight, the billionaire shoe dog, the man, the myth, the legend, the recluse, the person who started Nike by selling running shoes that he sourced from self-financed trips to Japan out of the trunk of his car and built an empire which today is the world's largest supplier and manufacturer of athletic shoes and apparel. And we very likely would not be able to say that without the signing in 1984 of the young college basketball player and NBA prospect who had a shoe named after him before he ever stepped foot on an NBA basketball court. The kid Nike bet the farm on and turned into a global icon. The jump man, the black cat, the black Jesus, the G. O A T. There you have it. A review and historical overview of the movie Air. Thanks for hanging out. By the way, I give this movie five out of five stars, which it would be awesome if you gave me if you're liking the pod. Next week, we'll be back with more sneaker news, sneaker releases, and a new topic. The topic next week will be more michael jordan's sneaker history for y'all when we'll be talking about jordan's most iconic moments and the shoes he was wearing on his feet when he had them hope to see you then <laughs>